All right, there are many challenges for the Westerner in Buddhism that didn't even exist in the time of the Buddha and often does not exist in uh, Buddhist cultures where, um, let us say, at least uh, a large group of people actually understand what the Buddha was teaching, what the Buddha taught. Unfortunately, um, not like Asia, where Asia, Buddhism was spread by those who knew what was going on. In the West, Buddhism has been spread by wannabes. And that that got started in several fits and starts all the way back in the 1830s. And then uh, with um, Henry David Thoreau and that group. And then uh, theopathy in the late 1800s. But by that time, that was when the British scholars were really interested in uh, the Dhamma. uh, Because they had run across all this old literature. So they have several jobs to do. One job to translate this stuff is that they've got to build their own lexicon. And how are they going to do that uh, other than having a relationship with other languages? So learning has been a very, very hard slog. And much of the translations have words in them, English words, that have the mindset of the translator rather than mindset of the actual text itself. I've found this. As I've gotten more familiar with some Pali words as I've been reading, I've noticed how some Pali words have the spirit about them, that that if you understand the spirit, you kind of get the meaning in this next. But when translated to English, that's completely lost. Sometimes it means something else. Yes, that's true. And that one of the cures for that because I've got friends here in Thailand, is that I have um, access to the Thai translations that are hundreds of years old and have been beat and knocked around and understood for generation after generation after generation, plus the fact that the Dhamma was brought to Thailand by nobles in the first place. Okay, none of that happened in the West. And so you had I.B. Horner and Riles Davies starting in the 1800s or late 1800s, 1880s, through uh, Riles Davies' wife into the 1920s doing what is now called the Polytext Society, which was the original translations and the original lexicons. And the lexicons themselves, not just the translators' translations, but the lexicons themselves are also subject to doubt about what is the right translation for particular words. But you can pretty well understand that all the words of Buddhism that are in Western Buddhism and and Buddhist thinking that have anything to do with religion are probably not the right words. Yeah. Then why why is it, if there's only one thing going on, why is it so difficult to understand? Uh, Because you have been trained for 25 years backwards. You have been trained in culture. You have been trained by ordinary people who who think in ordinary ways, not in noble ways. And so getting you to start thinking nobly is the job. That's 
to think wholesome rather than in unwholesome ways. All right. So just a few words that we can start with that are wrongly translated. The first one we will have is monk. Nun. Temple. Monastery. Chanting. You hear all of that religious talk? Yeah. Yeah. Guess what? Buddhist monks should not even be called a monk because that's almost is automatically confusing. They should be left with the original name of bhikkhu. I thought bhikkhu meant monk. That's what I thought. That's the right thing. Because when we use the word bhikkhu, we automatically go back to the time of the Buddha and the original ordination and the, and the wanderers in the forest. Not cloistered monks. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And so just from that point, but then there's another whole group of words that are very important. And because of that, we will spend time in the actual de deep definitions. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Dhamma is uh, slow to be taught is because most of the time we spend in defining the language or defining the words, giving new definitions. That's why I re referenced it like a dictionary is because we have to actually learn the vocabulary and once we do then we've got the language okay okay so uh, other words for instance like samati is one of the most mistranslated words we have it's translated exactly opposite to what it means what does it mean well it is translated as concentration. All right. So let us use an example of something that has concentration, some, something, a product, the way that we use it. And I generally choose frozen concentrated orange juice or even more than that, tang, because that's so concentrated that all the water is taken out of it. Yeah. Right. So you get the tang out. Do you eat it by the spoonful? No. Well, what do you do with it? I lose it. You put the water back in it that they took out and they took it out merely for transportation purposes, not for consumption. But the original intention was consumption. Yeah. OK, now let's talk about what the word samati actually means. The example in the suttas is with a yurt. Do you know what a yurt is? No. Do you know what a Western American, Western Indian teepee is? Yes. Okay. That teepee has a samati. Let me explain to you. All of those long slender poles that were young trees that were cut down are tied together at the top and then they are spread around. And then the blanket is put around it. Yeah. A yurt is a, is a similar tent that it was in Asia that has a center ridge pole. And then it has um, a lot of posts around. Okay, so many buildings are built that way so that they have a samati point in the sense that there's a particular point at the top of the building 
where everything comes together and that's the whole quality we're looking for ah okay i can see why it was okay okay is to bringing everything together and that and they and that's how it got misconfused you can understand how they confused it with con, with concentration and yet every student that we have now in meditation is trying to do something called concentration and they're missing the point completely okay all right what we mean by samadhi in reference to jhana is bringing the jhana factors together that's what the samadhi means is bringing all of the factors of the jhana together so that they are there i think in light of your new explanation you'll need to explain to me what what jhanas are then i, I, I will do that eventually okay but then the right now is an example. Another example is Sama Area Samati, which is translated wrongly as right noble concentration. And everybody goes around thinking somebody's got their eyebrows knitted and they're really working very hard doing noble concentration, which is exactly opposite of the part. The, we need to start doing this and, and start waking up. What actually right noble uh, concentration or samadhi means is unification of mind, where the mind is unified and organized and not divided and not split up and scattered around. An example of that would be if you lie, then you have both your lie and the truth. That's a division. We've broken that out. Okay, if the student has any doubt, then that doubt means that it's cloudy, is unable to be seen, and there is no unification. It might be this, it might be that, it might be the other thing. And we don't know what's going on. And so doubt is another way that will keep the mind from being unified. Also, if we um, are feeling the way that we want to feel, then that's unified, but if we're feeling a way that we don't want to feel, like we don't like to feel angry and we do things to keep from being angry, like when, okay? We don't like to feel sad. We don't like to feel afraid. And because of that, those kinds of feelings create division within the mind. But if you feel the way you want to feel, then you're congruent. In fact, this is a good word in English, is congruency. That's a better definition for the word samadhi than concentration. Yeah, okay. Understood. Okay. So, what we're looking at then is the practice of Anapanasati is the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path, most specifically certain items. Now, normally the Eightfold Noble Path is listed uh, in one order, uh, and, and almost formally so, though there is some rearrangements, but then it's taught to the beginner in a different order. But the way that I teach it is the way of the noble, the noble teaching of it, starting with noble Eightfold Noble Path, 
all right, rather than an ordinary path that eventually becomes noble. Okay. Maybe. If per, if they if they really make the change that's needed, so why not make it right away? Uh, yeah, I agree. All right, so uh, the ordinary path starts with Siva. In fact, you probably heard Siva Samati Panya. You've heard that before, right? That's the loser's path. All right. The winner's path is um, Samati Panya develops into Siva. Going back to the right noble mind or the uh, um, right noble Samati, a mind that's organized and unified, if you are complete and whole and unified, then you don't lack things. You don't want anything. If you want something, then you're divided. Yes, desire. Right. If you want something, then you might do something to get it. And if you want it bad enough, you'll do anything to get it, including breaking precepts. Yes. Right. And so we try to teach the student, it doesn't matter how much you want it, don't break the precepts. Yeah. The noble position is don't want anything and you're not breaking any precepts. Yes. This is a fundamental change then, is, is that when we get the mind unified, when we get the mind organized, when we get it complete and whole, then Sila is natural. There's nothing to, uh, no rules anymore. There's no rules to break. Because our job is not to keep the rules. Our job is to not do the right thing. Our job is to stop seeing things as right and wrong. Yes. Uh, a paradigm shift, mostly. It's a major paradigm shift. And this is paradigm shift is hard for the Westerners to make because many of the words that they use in understanding Buddhism came from the people who did the translation who did not make that paradigm shift themselves. That's dangerous. Pardon? That's dangerous. Well, that's Western Buddhism for us. The paradigm shift seems to be from existence to experience. Well, from telling stories about it to just enjoying it. Yes. And we'll talk about telling stories. We'll talk about verbal sankara quite a lot. The thought, thinking, concept. That, that was, and I won't get to the questions yet because I know you're in the midst of explaining, but one of the things I wanted you to do was to explain the five aggregates to me and how they form a self. We'll get around to that later, later much later. Ah, okay. When we get into the second noble truth, we'll start talking about the aggregates. Okay. The aggregates are a way of understanding the four noble truths, or the, the, the second noble truth. Okay. Okay. Um, actually, the five aggregates are part of a larger group 
called Paticca Samupada or dependent origination. Yes. The five aggregates are in there. And so we, in order to understand Paticca Samupada, which is profound, difficult to understand, and in English, almost impossible. I could I couldn't understand. It's went in twelve steps it, from how how the mind when when it when your mind is ready for it, I will describe it to you. But right now you're not ready for it. Definitely not. You're not ready for it. So don't worry about the things that you're not ready for. When you're ready for them, they will show up. Okay. Okay. This is not the organized method. This is quite natural. Okay. All right. Three-year-old children should not be trying to play Beethoven. <laughs> yeah, understood. Nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> understood. So, back to this point about the Eightfold Noble Path, that in fact, making sure that you understand that the one teaching, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, we can express that in many different ways. The way that I like it is, don't worry, be happy. Another one is, never mind, start again. That's what Gawanka would say. Very few people could get his mirth, but that was a, that's a magical statement. Never mind, start again. Doesn't matter how many, how hard you fall down, get up. <laughs> Never mind, start again. Let's do it again. All right, so that's Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, which means never mind the Dukkha. Start again, Dukkha Naroda. There are many ways to express this, but that Dukkha Naroda then breaks down into the four noble truths. What we use the word noble for is it's noble because. Actually, the word is used with a certain group of elements. If you know anything about chemistry, there's a group of elements. One of them is argon. Why do we call argon noble? Is because it's got exactly the right number of valence electrons and it don't need no help. It's okay. It's complete. complete. It's whole. It's a unified structure. Yeah. And for that reason, argon is a noble element. So noble-mindedness means that you don't need nothing. You're complete. You've got all your valence electrons humming around. Yeah, I understand. That's what makes it noble. And so these four noble truths are the truth about nobility. Okay. And and Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda breaks immediately down to the first and the third truth. There is suffering, and there is not suffering. Almost always in Western Buddhism, nobody gives any time or effort or thought or anything like that to the third noble truth. None at all. That's the most. Very few literature, very little literature about it. You know why? No, that's, it seems to be quite important. It should be, part. in fact, one of the most important ones. It should be part of your wholesome thought. Hey, am I okay now or not? Yeah. Am I okay now or not? If I'm not okay, that's Dukkha. If I'm okay, that's Dukkha Naroda. That's satisfying. That's, I'm okay. I'm good to go. 
I got it. Yeah. All right. So that third noble truth, we need to find time to recognize, hey, I'm okay now. This is good. This is the third noble truth. With me, I got it. I am not hurting. I'm not suffering. All right. So both the first and the third noble truth have a companion. The first noble truth has the companion of the second noble truth, which is what's all of this coming from? Where is all of this happening? And that's what breaks down into greed, ill will, and delusion. And we'll go into great detail about that second noble truth. In fact, the whole point of the fourth noble truth, the path, is the path to understand the nature of suffering, how it happens, why it does, so that we can see it correctly and avoid it completely. That's the whole point. So we will actually spend most of the time in the second noble truth, but we need to get ready to understand the second noble truth. We need to get the mind fit for work. Okay. This is what the path is about. The Eightfold Noble Path is actually the path for the beginner. Okay. That when the path is complete or when it is functioning as a path, then it is called the Sambo Jhana or the Seven Factors of Awakening or the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. Ah, okay. The seven factors of enlightenment is the completion of the beginners developing the skills that he needs in the first eightfold noble path. It shows how, how messed up I've been trying to develop these seven factors as well. <laughs> ah, I uh, think you're right. I'm just going to throw everything out and just shut up and listen. All right. So... Basically, the Eightfold Noble Path, then, is a set of skills that need to be developed so that we can properly attack the Second Noble Truth. Okay. And a way of looking at it is, is that we need, if you're going to go caving, have you ever been caving? I have not. All right. You can imagine that it's pretty dangerous. Uh, yes. Okay. Imagine. And that there are two tools that, uh, that most cavers have if they're very lucky. That is, one, he's got a light, and two, he's got a map. And this has already been commercialized where the map's on the wall and the lights are already in place. No, we're talking about a real cave with a real caver, okay? And that uh, um, what that means is, is that it takes a while for people to get into these big caverns because nobody's got a map in the beginning. But yeah. we're lucky because the Buddha has given us a map of this cave. What is the cave? This cave is the mind, the cave of the second noble truth. All right. And we need the light also so that we can see our way through it. This is why we have the practice of Anapanasati and that we practice Anapanasati for, uh, as we're practicing the Eightfold Noble Path. So the path factors that we're about to talk about 
and Anapanasati are the same practice. So, the first item on the list of the Eightfold Noble Path is Right Noble View. Right Noble View comes first. And you will only be able to go as far as you can see. Yes, the flashlight. All right, so this is why uh, it comes first, is you got to begin to see what's going on and that you already have been seeing some. In other words, you called me. That was a noble right view, that it would be better to call me. Also, you had other right noble views in the sense that it's better to practice meditation than it is to leave the mind full of garbage. A lot of people don't know that. Good example is Donald Trump. He has not figured out that he can change. And that's what it's all about. The, the right noble view is the, is the view forward or the way that we can see that we can change the way things are right now. So the second item on the list is noble sati. Sati is translated wrongly as mindfulness. In fact, I don't even know what mindfulness is. I've never heard the word mindfulness used in any context other than some sort of Vipassana meditation. Yeah. All right. So, <clears throat> Sati actually means um, it has the connotation of to remember. But that remember in the way that we're talking about has also the flavor of waking up. To wake up, to change our frame of reference from the what the mind was doing into something new. And that basically is to change it from thinking into being in the here now, to being present in the present moment. Okay, so sati or to wake up, to be here now means that uh, we're, uh, we're probably in the mind, thinking. Letting the mind spin and burn and whatnot like that, taking us in what this direction or that direction. Some people have called it monkey mind. But we need to have sati, to wake up, to recognize, oh, that's what's been ha happening, but that's not what we need to be doing. Yeah. Right noble view is with sati to say we got to take a look at what's going on and when we look at what's going on we generally recognize that what we're thinking about is either not particularly beneficial or it's downright unwholesome or it has the quality that is delicious but that is dangerous an example of that is someone who is not on a diet and he sees a donut, he says, mm, donuts, he sees, their he sees the delicious. But if he's on a diet, now he sees that donut as dangerous, not as delightful. Some things like donuts are both delightful and dangerous. Yeah. So... We have to be able to know, and in fact, sometimes uh, one of those delightful things is anger. That we really get, we like to be angry. It's cathartic. It's very cathartic. 
Mm-hmm. But well, it's more than that. It's power. I like being angry at Donald Trump, man. I enjoy it. It's one of the things that I've, I've had to try and let go because it was unwholesome. But I well, enjoy you're seeing, getting you're, angry. You're recognizing both the delight and the danger of that. So you begin to see the delight and the danger in many things. And in fact, this is a major teaching of the Buddha that most ordinary people can only see the delight. But when you see the drawbacks and the dangers, then you can plot your escape. Yes. <laughs> I love the way you said that. But only when you see the danger do you uh, plot the escape. So this is what the, the teaching of the Buddha is, is to begin to get the mind really fit for work so that we can see what's going on. That some things are just downright dangerous and unwholesome. Some things are kind of yucky. Uh, what we call junk thoughts, or just the the mind just uh, I, restlessly I wandering around. Discursive. Discursive thought, okay. And then we have this one that we're talking about, delightful but dangerous. But the one that we have not talked about yet is that which is both delightful and wholesome. Okay, continue. All right. So, the practice of Anapanasati then is um, the practice of to wake up and to remember in one step to look at what you're doing, to look at what's going on, to take a very close, deep investigation and to figure out what the mind is doing is of one of these four kinds. It's either unwholesome, delightfully so, or ordinarily so, or it's wholesome, which is also quite delightful, because you know in your own mind that it's wholesome. And if you investigate and find that it's unwholesome, then you have an opportunity right there to make a change, to change it immediately, right here, right now. That's the time that everyone gets benefit from any practice of Anapanasati, whereas people who practice meditation, they want to work really hard for a long time and then get some results or benefits far into the future. That's, but with Anapanasati, our benefit is right immediately. We go from dukkha to dukkha, rhoda, naroda immediately. Um, that takes effort. One's right effort. Ah, if okay. you work too hard, then you're then if it's work at all, in fact, that's not right effort. The right effort is easy, easy peasy. Never mind, I don't need to think about that. I'm going to have a ball instead. I'm so happy to hear you say that because the, one of the things I was scared of is having to sit still for 60 minutes and do concentration meditation to reach one of the jhanas because it i hate sitting and it's just me fighting with my mind going coming back going coming back everybody going. everybody recognizes something's wrong with this 
But then the doubt comes in, it's because I'm not doing it correctly, or I don't understand, or maybe it is this hard, and I really have to work this hard at it. That's the American way. That's Western. That's uh, uh, Western culture. you got to work really hard. And you, if you're a failure, you've got to work even harder. You see, if you intend to fail at the task that your boss gives you at work, you've got to at least prove to him how hard you're trying. If you just fail and say, oh, well, I didn't care anyway, the boss is going to fire you. No, you've got to look like you're working really hard, even though you're not giving him what he wants. Yeah, yeah. So then right. how, how, how can I develop the mind I need without, without so much effort and pain? Sorry about that, but you already developed all the suffering and pain. That's your, that's your uh, culture. It's not your nature, but that's the culture that you bought. You teach me to unlearn those things. That's what you You've teach You've got to unlearn. That's exactly what the, the teaching of the Buddha is all negative. Yes, not south. Yes. No, it's not unwholesome. Yes. <laughs> you have to drop all of the uh, unwholesome stuff. And when you drop all of that stuff, you've let go of quite a burden. Yes. No more anxiety, no more fear, no more anger, no more sadness. How? How do you let go? In that moment when you see it, you stop it right then. Yes, that's that, that has been happening. That has been happening for over a year and a half. You have to stop it right when you catch it. That's for the waking up. To wake up to what you're doing and stop doing it. So then tell me what my meditation should look like then. Well, we're trying to. Okay, go. Alright. So we have to take the right effort. That right effort is in two ways. One way is to go to the breath. This is Anapanasati. It requires deep breathing. It requires slowing the breath down, and it also has the quality of watching the breath in a much different way than most people think that they watch. This is not a passive watching. It's got to be an active kind of watching in the sense that you watch every breath to make sure that this in-breath is a long in-breath and that this out-breath is a long out-breath. So we slow the breathing down to make it long in time and also begin to fill the lungs up a little bit more. This has great benefit to the body. It helps purify the body and it helps energize the body. It's a real cleaning out process. If we cannot learn to control our breathing, we'll never learn to control the mind. We actually learn to control the mind by learning to control the breathing. That something remarkable has happened with um, um, MRIs. And that is, is that when they tell people to consciously slow down and deep breathe, the frontal cortex actually starts to light up. 
Why? Because the, the breathing is being controlled in two ways. One is normally controlled by the reptilian brain yeah, in the back that. of the head. Yeah. But when we consciously breathe, when we use sati, when we wake up and take a deep in breath, and then we take a deep out breath, this lights up the frontal cortex. I've seen the pictures of the, uh, uh, of the neurology. This is quite amazing. So, it energizes the body and it keeps the sati going so that we can remember because we're remembering twice with each breath. We remember that this is an in-breath and that we remember that this is an out-breath, a long one. This is one's right effort. Another aspect of right effort is the right effort to change the mind, to throw out whatever was in the mind and to gladden the mind, to put something in the mind that is gladdening. Like, oh, wow, I caught you. Or, aha, I see you. Or, wow, I don't have to think about that at all. Or, wow, I don't need to do that right now. I can just sit and relax. An example of that would be like, you have to go to the bank. Maybe you go to the bank the next week or something like that. So why think about the bank a dozen times before you go? And yet that's how we do it. We think about the bank and then we don't go. And then we think about the bank and then we don't go. And then we think about the bank and then we don't go. And finally we go to the bank and then we don't have to think about the bank anymore. Oh, but then we just start thinking about something else. That, that's another week away. And then the whole exactly. life is like that. And our whole life is spent in the, fore, in, the, in the past and in the future. Yes. And we need to wake up to that and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be here now. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to see that stuff. Now, the Buddha, when he was under the bow tree in his original time of developing this, when he figured out Paticca Samapada, when he understood the, the Four Noble Truths, he had a key, and that key was from his earlier practice, but that was the key that unlocks his whole thing, and that key was, the Buddha said, Aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, I see it. Okay, so this is the practice now that he developed with Anapanasati is you've got to see this stuff. Aha, I wake up to that and then out it goes. We have to take the right effort to see that this is Dukkha. We wake up and that gladdening the mind. In fact, while I'm saying, aha, I see you, Mara, I've already changed what's in my mind. Yes, because it cannot exist unconsciously. You, you, once you become conscious of it, yes, then it's no and, longer unconscious habits. And so this is how we practice over and over and over again. Uh -huh, I see that stuff, and then out it goes, and then we come and we feel good again. We allow ourselves to feel really good, really comfortable, and we gladden the mind intentionally. We gladden the mind because we know that we're doing the right thing. This is wholesome finally in our first time in our lives. We're actually now practicing wholesome stuff by throwing out the unwholesome. My, what a good boy am I. Not in the sense of pride, but in the sense of success. 
to allow yourself to become successful. Because what is your only option? Being unsuccessful, being a failure. So we have to allow that feeling of success. The Pali word for it is sukha. Sukha is actually the opposite of dukkha. And sukha is a word that's in, um, it's number six in the list of Anapanasati. Now, it's not number six in a list of the way to practice. It's a list in a formalized order. And it's in the Vedana section, in the sense that you have to develop the skill of being satisfied. You have to develop the skill of being in the state of pleasure. And the only way that you can do that is by talking yourself into it, because that's exactly how you wound up feeling bad in the first place, is because you talked yourself into it. Over many decades, though. Over many, many decades. So let's take a while and reverse that process. Is the reversal going to take decades, though? Uh, Maybe not. And if you, and if it does, let let us say yes. Okay, so it takes many decades. How are you going to spend the next 10 decades in total misery or working your way out of it? That's true. This practice is not, not for some future benefit. We gain benefits in each moment. In this moment, precisely. <laughs> You're beginning to think about the Dhamma now. That's good. That if you can bring yourself to a state of pleasure and joy in this moment, then that gives you the confidence that you can do it again. In any moment, yeah. And again, and again, and again. Now, as we do this, we begin to change our mentality from being pessimistic, being a loser, into being a winner. This is also part of the Eightfold Noble Path. This is right attitude. And right attitude is the most important of all of them. Though we do say, number one, right view comes first. Number two, sati is the most important skill to develop. Why? Because if you can't remember to have right attitude, you're not going to have right attitude. So that's the skill that has to be developed and over and over and over again. And we spend our time with sati. So if the mind wanders away, that's not a problem. That's just an opportunity for sati. Ah, I caught you wandering away. Wakey, wakey. All right. So number one skill to be developed is sati. We also have to balance right effort, and I'll talk more about right effort later. But right attitude, that's the thing that makes all of this stuff unification. That unifies this whole process so that you have the skill of right view and right investigation, right waking up, right being here, right effort, and right attitude come together to bring about that element, right noble samadhi. The mind is unified now. And when it is unified, it is pure. And it is not breaking sila or any of those people's rules about what they're supposed to do. We live it naturally. Yes, you don't have to remember to follow the rules because they don't arise to the unwholesome ones. 
That would make your yes. breath just simply on the rise. Well, <laughs> to repeat it often enough, there's, it starts like this. Panati pata ve ramani sagabadam samatiyami Atena dana ve ramani sagabadam samatiyami Kame sumi chakira ve ramani sagabadam samatiyami Musa wada ve ramani sagabadam samatiyami Sura Maria Macha Hamatadana we Ramani, Sakabadam Samatiyami. You probably heard that before. I don't know what it means. I've heard it, but I don't know what it means. <laughs> Panatipata means to take the breath away. Okay. All right, to take the breath away. So if you harm or kill an animal, you're taking its breath away. Oh, okay. The joke is, is that fish don't breathe, so it's okay to eat fish. But that's a little primitive thinking there. Yes, I know. Um, so, um, atenadana means to not take things that are not actually given to you. Oh, okay. All right. I understand that thing now. All right. And what that actually means is, is that you don't go around asking for things. You don't set prices. You don't buy and sell. You just allow that your, everything is going to be given to you if you need it. And so you receive gifts. Yeah. And so the entire teaching of the Buddha then is, is based around generosity, not a business deal. Yeah. And so I give you the Dhamma freely. Yes. So, Kamesumi uh, Chachara means to stay away from sexual misconduct. Musawada is a uh, wrong speech. Well, what's sexual misconduct, or what's defined as sexual misconduct that seems so set by society? Yes, it is set by society. It darn well is. And if you start to put the make on your best friend's girl, he's going to let you know. Yeah, so I understand that is like dishonesty, right? But I'm looking for more of a, like, for example, an open relationship. I would not see that as sexual misconduct if, if all parties are agreeable with it, right? It's not something I would partake in, but what part of that would be a misconduct? So I want okay. a clarification. On I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just going to leave that one for you to figure out for yourself. I've already given you one where there is actually misconduct, and no, everybody definitely. lets you know. Yes, yes, okay. Okay, continue. Eventually, in this open relationship, she'll probably let you know, finally. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, uh, sorry, you were, you were saying continue? And then Sura Maria Macha are three alcoholic drinks that we could think of as beer, wine, and spirits. So no intoxicants at all? Um, that's the rules. 
These are rules for bhikkhus, though, yeah? It, it, are these... No, 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 no. These are the rules that they give to the kids when they come to the Wat, when their mom brings them to the Wat. These are the rules that are laid down for the people who are taking a retreat. Oh, you no, know, during the retreat, I understand, but a lifestyle choice. Um, are you to refrain from all intoxicants? Obviously, ones that generate unwholesome states and thoughts are, should be yes, refrained so from. Yes, why would you abstain from alcohol? Uh, why would you abstain from intoxicants? Uh, I would imagine they would get in the way of uh, having a clear, a clear mind so that I can see how things are, actually are. In other words, you can see it's dangerous. I, I think it's dangerous. Okay, uh, so it's not, dangerous because you can see it's dangerous, right? Al alcohol. So why do you need a stupid rule? Well, because there's You can some... see it directly. The reason for the rules is because there are many people who cannot see. Okay. They do not have right view. Okay. Okay, I understand. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's where the precepts come from. But the precepts are for um, idiots and stupid people. Oh, you mentioned this. You mentioned this twenty minutes ago. If you have right view, then you you, you already can see that it's one of the four unwholesome thoughts that could spring up. So there's no need to have this list of oh, should I do this or should I not? You can see it's dangerous. Why would you want to do it? Yeah. Well, if you carry around a list of rules, one of the things that might happen is is that you lose it. You lose that list of rules, and then how are you going to feel? You don't know what to do anymore because you've been living by a piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. And or, or if one day you find out that what was written in the piece of paper was wrong or different, now you've lived your whole life according to a piece of paper. Yeah, but who's going to tell you that and you believe them? Yeah, well, exactly, especially if it's been happening for decades. Then no, it's when you actually see for yes. yourself. Yes, agreed. Okay. okay. So, this is what we mean by these four things of right view, right sati, right effort, leading to right attitude. This is practiced with anapanasati in the sense of sati, to wake up, to investigate with right view what the mind is doing, and if it is doing something wholesome, congratulate yourself. And if you're doing something that's critical of yourself, or just junk thoughts, or um, you want something that you don't have, like enlightenment, or whatever like that, then you can see those thoughts are unwholesome, just throw them out, take a deep breath, and become happy again. This is the basic practice, over and over and over again, and we'll go into all of the de depths and details of Anapanasati, but this is the basic point, to wake up, to take the right uh, investigation, to check to see what you're doing, to define it whether it's wholesome or not, because we have that knowledge. We throw out the unwholesome. Aha, I see you. And out you go. Aha, is, I see you, Mara. This is, this is an issue. This is an issue I've been having for some time. And I think this is the first email that I ever sent you, that long email was, was that, that the sati, this mindfulness was... It was really, really unpleasurable for me. Not the sassy component, but my reaction to it. Because I would continually wake up. like And maybe, be critical of yourself. You were only yes. half waking up. Yes, I would wake up and only then I would Only half myself. waking up, okay? Here, let's talk about half waking up. Because you do it every day. 
Every time you wake up in the morning, let us say you wake up generally with the alarm going off. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? Put the alarm off. All right. And then what do you do? Um, in what level of detail are we talking here? In mental detail or like what getting out of the bed? Basically, I'll go straight to the point. You don't get out of bed immediately. No. No. Okay. You, you are still half asleep. You're still in bed. This is exactly what happens with meditation is they wake up in the dukkha and they stay in it. They don't get out. All right. Now let's give you an example of where that doesn't happen. And that is in boot camp or it happens in the Zendo. When the Zen master comes in the room, you better wake up or he's going to hit you with a stick. All right. The other one, let's go to boot camp. It's five minutes to 6 a.m. The bugle goes off at six. The D.I. comes in at five minutes to six with his baton banging around all hands on deck. What are the people in the in the in the rack when they're getting woken up by the d- drill instructor rather than alarm? What is he going to do? Is he going to turn the alarm off and roll over? No. Or is he going to hit the deck? He's going to get up. Right. Yeah. That's the kind of sati that very few meditators are able to develop right away. So my this sati is sati. hobbled. So it's not that my sati was super strong and then I was just reacting badly to it. It's not. It was just hobbled by being done half. It was only half. half it was only half awake, and you didn't come out of the hindrances. Because I spent two years beating my, like hating myself for realizing that I was constantly living in in the past and the future, constantly. Right. Okay. Let me finish this part off with uh, this story. Because it's actually quite a delightful little story. The story was told by Donald Trump. The story is, is that a woman was walking down the road and she saw a snake that was poorly uh, in poor health. She picked the snake up tenderly in her arms and took it home. And after a few days of nursing the snake back to health, it bit her. And she, in her dying moments... Asked the snake, why did you bite me? Because I'm a snake. And, and he told her, you knew I was a snake before you took me in. Yeah. Okay. Now, what that means is that I'm about to give you the word, um, uh, a definition of a word, but we're going to change the definition of it a little bit in perspective. And that is the word stupid. We're going to define stupid in the following way, that people know what is unwholesome and what is wholesome. They know the difference between right and wrong, and they do the wrong thing anyway. And this is your average Trump voter. They have known all along that he was a crook, that he was a thief, that he was a liar, and that he was going to harm many, many people. And they voted for him anyway. And, and did so again, yeah. Why did they vote for him anyway, even though they knew that he was uh, a bad actor? They knew. So why did they vote for him? 
because they agreed with his policies. They agreed that people of different color skin, ethnicity, and sexual orientation should be. Uh, I'm no, not they wanted to get something out of it for themselves. They were acting selfishly. The South, yes. Acting selfishly, thinking that if we elect Donald Trump, he will do something for us. He'll give us judges or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, Supreme Court, yeah. Okay. And so those same people that voted for him knowing that he was a bad actor, you cannot prove to those people how bad he is because they already know how bad he is and they voted for him anyway. Yeah, I know, I made the choice. (laughs) That is a definition of stupid. Knowing what the wrong thing is and doing it anyway. And knowing the wrong thing and doing it anyway. So that's exactly what you are happening with you is is that when you have waking up, you're not waking up completely. You know that the mind had wandered away and that you do it anyway. In other words, you know that it's not wise to be critical of yourself, to go over critically, and yet you're doing it anyway. It's it's habitual. It's a a habit. Yes, it is. It's the same same habit. Wakey, wakey is the answer to that. Wake up to what you're doing. Yes, yes. No, no, I I understand. Being aware of the habits. But it's the same thing why I find it hard to pat myself on the back. Because that that unwholesome existential... I know. That's why I take the job. That's why I congratulate the students when they first start making progress. You haven't any, so I haven't congratulated you yet. Except for having right view to call. Other than that, we're going to have to wait to see. But you need to learn to congratulate yourself. Basically, uh, parenting, and we'll talk about this much detail later, that parenting comes in two forms, critical and nurturing. And most adult parents that work with kids spend much more time being critical of the child than they do spend nurturing that child. Therefore, you have spent most of your life then mimicking the parents in your head and being critical of yourself with all of these rules that you've made up. Now you've got a whole new set of rules called meditation rules and you're being critical of yourself. Instead of congratulate yourself, wakey, wakey. Yeah, I see you, Duca. I can see myself. I, I can see myself. I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> but this is the thing. My thoughts are so malicious, right? It doesn't even go straight to. Uh, uh-huh, how malicious you are. Yes, yes. <laughs> Again. <laughs> um, the immediate question thought that pops into my head, who is congratulating who? These are just a weave of five Let's adjectives. Let's not deal with questions you don't know how to answer yet. But that's the that's what pops into my no, head. No, this is conventional language. We have to talk in conventional language because it's too much work to talk in Dhamma language only. Okay. Do not que- even the Buddha would use pronouns, and so his enemies would say he doesn't teach Yanata. Okay. All right. Allow us to use pronouns, but we know that we're using pronouns. Yeah, okay. We know, we begin to wake up to the language that we're using, but I use that language with you because I want you to get the point 
Yeah, no, I, I understand. I understand your point. Is I'm just saying these are the type of unwholesome existential stuff that pops into my mind. Well, you're not a cell, so how can you congratulate? What are you talking? How could you possibly pat yourself on the back? You aren't a cell. There's no one to pat anyone else. That's logic. Ah, uh, yeah, but that's the worst possible way of seeing no cell. And we'll talk about it when the time is right, but let's talk about it this way. Instead of using the word self and no self, use the word selfish, selfishly or selfish. Because that's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about a self. We're talking about do you act selfishly? Ah, yes, I understand. I understand the distinction. That's a very important distinction. Yes, I understand. And congratulating yourself for not being selfish is not selfish. Uh, see, I'm not. Yeah, see, that's that's a belief I need to get over as well because you're supposed to not be selfish, so you shouldn't have to need congratulations. You're supposed to be a good person. You yeah, well, you're supposed to be on the moon. Supposed to, supposed to, supposed tos. You don't deserve pats on the back for doing just the normal thing. Is is what is the belief I need to drop? You begin to learn to congratulate yourself for doing wholesome things. And not congratulate yourself for doing unwholesome things. Yes. I need to work on this. It will make life so much easier for me to not be fighting with myself every second of the day. Yes. That's true. And when you say fighting with yourself is basically different ego states. Yeah. But there is there is that verbal part, and then there is that feeling part, and so the verbal is blah 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 blah, and then the feeling was oh, like this. Okay. yeah, that's exactly what's happening. It's a dialogue within the brain, and we'll talk about that dialogue and the parts of it and all of that kind of stuff in due time. But the first thing that we've got to get together is you've got to get into the habit, or not a, the habit, but at least get started on fully waking up to get yourself into a state of joy. Okay. Understood. That is going to get started that way. Uh, that joy is not going to happen if you don't cultivate it. Okay. Satisfaction is not going to happen if you don't cultivate it. If you don't practice it, just like not practicing the piano. If you don't practice the piano, you're not going to learn how to play it. Yeah. Okay, so you've got to cultivate joy. You've got to find it wherever it may be found. And that, aha, I see you, Myra, is a great help. Okay. Okay. So as you can tell, I've got other callers coming I in. I can see. I can tell you. It's, it's all good. Thank you so right. much for your help. So you you go practice getting yourself in this moment into a state of feeling good. Get yourself into a state of Dukkha Naroda so that you can say, aha, this is third noble truth. Yeah, I will. Definitely. It's, it's been such a help. Thank you so much for clarifying for me. Thank you. We're just getting started. I know. I'll see you next week. See you. See you. Bye.